It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Podcast Network, I'm Dana Perino, and everything will be okay. Welcome back. On last week's episode, we heard from Dr. Mark Schreim and Francine Lafrac, who shared their stories about the importance of living and working with a purpose. Something stuck with me from my conversation with Dr. Schreim, a theme of his upcoming book, Solving for Why, about asking life's biggest question, why? And once you find the answer to why, everything else seems to fall into place. This week, I am joined by someone who also asked the question why, the answer changed the course of her life. Following 9-11, I had been in touch with a friend from my Capitol Hill days, Mindy Tucker. In 2001, she was the director of communications for the Attorney General. I sent her an email asking if she was okay. She called me a couple of days later. Would I be willing to come back to Washington? She needed another spokesperson on her team. I started packing right then. Jean Becker is the former chief of staff to President George H.W. Bush and previously served as deputy press secretary to former first lady Barbara Bush. Jean explains to me why she decided to leave her career in journalism to work for the first family. Plus, she shares behind-the-scenes stories about what post-presidential life was like for the 41st president. What is the best piece of advice you ever received from the Bushes? Probably from both of them and both from watching them, Dana, and listening to them, you have two choices in life. You can love your life or you can decide to hate your life. And they both always recommended love your life. Choose to live your life with joy, even through the tough times. They were amazing at getting through the tough times. They had some tough times. What would you say, if you're looking back, what were the sort of maybe the the toughest times that they went through? Of course, this is way before my time, but when their daughter Robin died at age three from leukemia, she actually died a couple of years before I was even born. But because I've written books with both of them, I certainly learned a lot about what they went through during that very difficult time period. And of course, for President Bush, which I did live through with him, was losing the 1992 election to Bill Clinton. As he used to tell people, I got fired by the American people. But one of my favorite pieces of advice that I heard President Bush give over and over, particularly to young people, is that often out of adversity comes challenges and success. Adversity can make you a stronger, better person. And he probably would have told me to go all the way back to when he was shot down during World War Mm. II. He had some tough times, but he always rose to the occasion, learned a lot, and moved on. I also remember that both 41 and 43 said it was harder to be the father and the son of a president than it was to be the president when it came to the um, criticism that they both received. How did 41 deal with that? (laughs) My least two least favorite two years of being his chief of staff 
would have been 2000 and 2004, the two election years for his son, President Bush, 41, was a wreck during those elections because he just took everything so personally. I think those years were harder for him than 1992, actually. And he just wanted to constantly protect his son, which, of course, is a parent's instinct. When he lost in 1992, what was it? I know that they had chosen you know, to love their life, but what was it that he did in the wake of that disappointment to bounce back? You know, Because I think a lot of people go through things like this at times in their lives, either rejection or disappointment, or maybe they lose a job or they and a relationship ends, or there's some sort of really big adversity in their lives. Um, was there something that he did that you would recommend to other people that they think about trying to do? That's a great question, Dana. And it's the first chapter in my book about him, the man I knew. Uh, he, I think it's important I watched him do this. I was actually in Houston helping Mrs. Bush write her memoirs as he was going through this. And I sat at a card table in his kitchen in the office. That's how we got to know each other and how we became friends. I think he first took some time to lick his wounds. And I actually think that's important part as part of the grieving process. But then he decided that life was meant to be lived. And after a few months of, of staying on the down low and fishing and reading and spending some quiet time, all of a sudden he came roaring back. And a lot of that was driven, Dana, by his innate, innate sense that any, he used to say this all the time, and it was part of his mantra for founding points of light, that any definition of a successful, successful life had to include serving others. And I know at some point in 1993, President Bush realized he had too much to give. He wasn't ready to sit on the sidelines or to play golf. And so he was back. And that began, as I talk about in the book, he almost had an idea a day. I used to sort of dread him coming into my office at 7 a.m. and saying, Gene, I have an idea. I'd be like, okay, what are you thinking today? But it was a lot of fun. And I just learned a lot from watching him rise out of the ashes of the 92 defeat to being one of the most revered men in America and the world when he died 25 years later. So you've written this book, um, The Man I Knew, and I love it. I recommend everybody get this book. It's um, got a lot of heart and humor and wonderful advice. Let's talk about you for a moment. I have long admired your career. How did you know it was the right time to leave journalism and go to work for the Bushes? I, I, it, it is one of, you're so great about, you're such a great mentor, Dana, to young people, particularly young women. That's such a wonderful role that you play and so vital. And the one piece of advice I would give young women in particular I loved being a newspaper reporter. I was at USA Today in 1988. I'd covered the campaign. I was about ready to become one of their White House reporters. It was my dream job. And then out of the blue, I got a job offer to be one of Barbara Bush's deputy press secretaries at the White House. And looking back, I cannot believe I'm admitting this. I thought about it for two weeks. Mm -hmm. 
and I went home to Missouri for Thanksgiving. I grew up on a farm in Missouri, and my dad, who was one of the smartest people I knew, he never graduated high school, but he was such a smart man. I told him about the job offer, and he looked at me, and he said, okay, let me get this straight. The incoming first lady of the United States has offered you a job at the White House to be part of her staff, and you can't make your mind up. What is wrong with you? I knew immediately that he was right. So my advice to young people is be ready for that unexpected fork in the road. I thought my life was on track. I was living my five-year plan, my 10-year plan. And all of a sudden, here comes this unexpected fork in the road. And I will forever be grateful to my dad for saying, take take that fork, Gene, and find out what's down that road. So that's my big piece of advice. Be spontaneous. I remember when I was thinking about, I was just having a hard time figuring out how to make a start in local news, but I wanted to, I had ambition to be higher up and I was looking at how long it would take to do that. And when I then get a job offer to go to Washington, D.C., in my mind, I felt that meant that I would never get to work in journalism or television. And I had these blinders on and sometimes it takes somebody like your dad or even for me, frankly, it was um, the Heavenly Father because I finally just had to pray about it and then woke up one more the next morning after I'd put my prayer in that little uh, gap in between wakefulness and falling asleep. And when I woke up, I'm like, oh, okay. And now I look back at that. And part of the reason I wrote the book the way I did is every career advancement I had or the fork in the road was not something I had planned, not, not a single one of them, but I was ready for each of them. And I think that made a, a really big difference. And now I get to work in television. <laughs> You've come full circle. You've realized all your dreams. I, I have. Remember, I love it. You know, when I was contemplating the the job offer from the White House, and I told the editor of USA Today, and USA Today was right on the Potomac River in Virginia, and he is screaming at me, and he pointed out the window, and he said, if you cross that river, you will never come back, ever. Well, I crossed the river. No regrets. No regrets. Were there skills from your journalism career that served you well when you were the chief of staff for 41? Oh, that is such a great question. Um, Yes. Probably number one would be learning to think on my feet. You know, when you're a reporter, you have to react to breaking news and you're doing an interview with someone and They may say something very unexpected. The interview may take an unexpected fork in the road. And I think, and certainly you have to learn people skills. You have to pick up the phone and cold call a source and try to get them to cooperate. I think all of those skills helped me a lot to be President Bush's chief of staff. He was such an active, energetic, and as I said, an idea, a a minute person that it was, I had to pedal pretty fast to keep up with him. And being a reporter helped me do that. And now you've written two books. um, And I emphasize in my book the importance of improving writing skills. What are your Uh tips for people that want to improve their writing? Read as much as you can. Read uh, 
that will teach you a lot about writing, particularly read the kind of book you're interested in writing. If you want to read, if you want to write fiction, then read fiction. If you want to, if you want to write nonfiction, do the same, but just read, read, read. And always begin. I actually just had a conversation with someone who is wanting to write a book. She spent years as an undercover FBI agent and has so many good stories to tell. And she's trying too hard to write the book. And I said to her, Jeannie, just sit down and start writing. Don't worry about structure. Don't worry about what is chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. Don't worry about grammar and all that. Just write from your heart and the rest of it will come. You, I mean, I, and you know this, Dana, I reorganized the chapters in this book 10 times, but I just, I just started writing and then I would think, oh, wait a minute. I think this is chapter five. Mm. Oh, wait, this might be chapter three. And thank heavens for cut and paste. <laughs> it's a lot easier now than it used to be. But just so my, my biggest advice to want to be writers is just start writing what's in your heart. And you can use your head later to figure out structure and proper grammar and all that. Okay. In my book, I talk about the importance of managing up. And you don't get much higher than managing up when you're managing a president or a former president, in my opinion. Perhaps CEOs. <laughs> I think CEOs probably have a lot of that as well. Do you know what I mean by managing up? Like, Knowing what they're going to need, being prepared for those ideas. I used to have this one thing. Please forgive me, President Bush, for admitting this. But there were times when a boss might say, oh, you know, we should do such and such. And you know it's a terrible idea. And you just sort of go, oh, yeah, interesting. Okay, and then move on. Now, I would have on those types of things a three-request rule. The first time, I'd be like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, that's interesting. The second one, I'd be like, okay, yep, I'll well, maybe do a little preliminary research. On the third time, like, okay, he's serious. We better really actually work on that. Um, but it was also about just anticipating their needs. And you were having to do that not just for 41, for, but for Mrs. Barbara Bush at the same time. Any tips for people in terms of managing up? Get a lot of sleep. Um, Mrs. Bush used to call me at 6 o'clock in the morning I was her speechwriter, Dana, for the post-White House period. And she would call me at 6 a.m. and said, have you totally lost your mind? And that particular occasion, that was when I wrote something in one of her speeches about Gerald and Betty Ford's sex life. It's complicated. I'm not sure I can explain what I was thinking that particular day. But to, to manage up, you just need to be ready to answer their questions, to answer the concerns, do your homework. Don't, don't, I hope I don't have to say this, but don't make stuff up. Make sure you know what you're talking about. One of the things that President Bush taught me, and it was such a good lesson, this particularly when his son was president of the United States, and I would go into his office and I would say, sir, the White House called, and they are wondering if, and he would say, that's so interesting, Gene. I wasn't aware that a building could make a phone call. Who called? Who called you? Who had this idea? <laughs> Who are you? And he would just start peppering me with really good questions. So my, my first biggest piece of advice is to do your homework. And if you are 
a press secretary to the President of the United States like you were, or a chief of staff to a former president, you have to be willing once in a while to stand your ground. I won some and I lost some, but you need to have the guts to make your points. If you two don't agree, say what you feel needs to be said. And if you lose, lose graciously. If you win, win even more graciously. Yeah, don't rub that in. Don't rub that in. Exactly. What time of day was the best time to approach the Bushes? And maybe it was different for each of them. What time of day was a good time to ask them uh, a question that was going to either require them to say yes to or maybe something that was a little bit difficult? I would say for 43, you definitely wanted to catch him before noon. Well, for definitely 41 mornings, he was a morning person and we would have our most substantive conversations early in the morning. For the two of them together, I would have lunch with them together at least once a week. And we had some wonderful, uh, important lunchtime conversations. That would be the best time to talk to them together about some joint decisions I needed for them to make. And later, you know, as they grew older, I would go over in the evenings and visit with them. But President Bush was definitely a morning person. We would pretty well have our business concluded by noon every day. And he would spend the afternoons writing. He loved to write. The afternoons were sort of his to write letters and and return phone calls. So 7 a.m., I would make sure I'd have a couple of, of good stout cups of coffee under the belt. I love that. Wait right there. We'll have more next. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. I was told that you have a really funny story about nervous energy in regards to some sort of towel situation in the year 2000. <laughs> Jason Bonewald loves this story, and I feel like we need we owe it to our listeners to tell everybody. Oh, my gosh. It took me a minute. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Okay, Election Day 2000. Most of your listeners probably know what happened. Mm -hmm. Um, The evening election night was chaotic and confusing. 
and we wake up the next morning and we do not have a president-elect, we're about ready to get, you know, go down the rabbit hole of the recount. And President and Mrs. Bush and I were in Austin. They had spent the evening the night before with George and Laura at the governor's mansion. I was at the Marriott with Carl Rove and his team. And we were going to drive back to Houston that next day, three hours, and it was absolutely pouring down rain. I was going to ride with the Secret Service and their back seat and try to get some sleep and just try to process everything that had happened. And we rode about two blocks and this, the motorcade pulls over and the Secret Service said, uh, yeah, Gene, President Bush wants you to ride with him. I'm like, oh boy. So I moved up to their car. Mrs. Bush moved to the third seat of their SUV and wanted me to sit next to him. And he is just a nervous wreck, Dana. He is a wreck and he's working the phones. He talked to Secretary Baker. He talked to Jeb. He, of course, talked to Carl Rove. He, he was just a mess and he wanted to know what I knew. Mrs. Bush is sitting in the third seat, needle pointing. And in the middle of all this chaos, she says to me, Jean, Laura really needs to buy new towels for the governor's mansion. The towels in the governor's mansion are entirely too small. And I hope I didn't hurt her feelings, but I told her that. And I sort of turn around and I said, oh, well, I'm sure she didn't mind the advice. And then she continues to talk about the importance between bath towels and regular sized towels, needle pointing away. She was in total denial about mm. the election. And President Bush is on the phone with the, 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 the call I remember the most is the one with Jeb, who was in the governor of Florida. He had just landed back in Tallahassee. And he called his dad and he said, I literally am watching an Al Gore for President Plane 737 just landed on the tarmac in Tallahassee. And every top Democratic lawyer in the country is getting off that plane. He says, we're already behind. George didn't have anybody on the ground in Tallahassee. And so President Bush is trying to talk to me about this. And Mrs. Bush is saying, Gene, how big are your bath towels? <laughs> and I remember, Dana, you're going to swear I'm making this up, but it's true. The, it was just such a bizarre scene in that car. I remember thinking if I opened the car door and rolled out into the ditch, would any of them realize that I was gone? And would the motorcade just keep going? And then I decided I would not do that. But that is the towel story from 2000. But that was her way of coping Mm hmm. <laughs> Tell me about how the president was lobbying or trying to get your brother to be the pope. <laughs> that is one of my favorite stories of the book. Um, so the Bushes became very close to my little brother because he our parents had both died and he was a lawyer who decided to become a Catholic priest. And when he was had a month off every summer, he would come spend them with me in kind of Monkport. So he became very close to President Mrs. Bush. They're very proud of him for his vocation. He becomes a priest. And a couple of years after becoming a priest, his bishop sent him to Rome 
to study for a couple of years, which is not unusual. Rome is full of priests from all over the world who are studying. And I Mitt Romney, the first I knew of President Bush's plot is Mitt Romney comes to Houston while Eddie is in Rome. I think it was the 2012 election. He came to tell President Bush that he was going to run again, that he was going to challenge President Obama. And the three of us are having a conversation and President Bush wanted to know if Mitt thought being a Mormon would be as much an issue in 2012 as it had been in 2008. And Mitt did not think it would be. We were, you know, he said, we're sort of gotten past that. If the fact that we'd elected our first black president, you know, once one glass ceiling is broken, it breaks a lot of glass ceiling, just this really interesting conversation. And apropos of nothing, President Bush says, Mitt, are you aware that Jean's little brother is on the short list to be the next Pope of the Catholic Church? Oh my gosh, Dana, I I didn't know what to say. I, I couldn't say, sir, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Where did you get that from? So I just sort of laughed and, and Mitt looked at me and said, well, Jean, that's so interesting and wow. And I said, well, he's studying in Rome and President Bush is sort of nodding his head. And I said, I do not think he will be the next Pope. And then I just, I changed the subject. A couple of weeks later, he says it to a whole room of people. We're at a Points of Light big luncheon. And he says to this whole group of Points of Light people, are you all aware that Gene's brother might be the next Pope? And they're all like, wow, that's unbelievable. So that time in the car, going back to the office, I said, President Bush, you have got to quit telling people that Eddie is going to be the next pope. I said, first of all, there probably will never be an American pope. And number two, even if there is, it won't be Eddie. He's been a priest for two years, for heaven's sakes. And President Bush says, but he's in Rome. Isn't, isn't he in Rome sort of, you know, getting ready for all this? I said, no, 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 no. And he says, Gene, I'm starting a buzz. Don't you understand buzz? I'm going to tell everyone this. I'm going to start a buzz about Eddie. <laughs> I said, sir, I don't know how the Episcopal Church works, but the Catholic Church doesn't do buzz. <laughs> we don't operate on buzz. So after a while, he finally gave up. He did mention Eddie to Cardinal DiNardo here in Houston as I'm giving him the evil eye. But uh, Eddie loved the story. And of course, President Bush was almost right about everything. My little brother is still not the Pope. I don't think he will be. You are the best storyteller. And boy, did you have material. Did you have material, Gene? It's very special. It's why I had to write this book, Dana. Mm -hmm. President Bush left me way too many good stories to tell. It almost would have been criminal not to write the book. And he also left as a blueprint... As I was writing the book, as I was writing The Man I Knew, I realized that he left us a blueprint on how to live a life well-lived. His life was full of joy and substance. Oh, my gosh, what a difference this man made. He taught us how to live. So I, I really appreciate your saying that. I had to write this book because it would have been selfish not to. Let's end. I could talk to you for hours, but I wanted to end on a story that you opened the book with, and that was on the day he died. 
and how mm-hmm. his his thoughts were not about himself. If you could tell that story. He, um, you know, for the last couple of days, we knew that that Stein was near. And earlier, he died about 10 o'clock at night. And earlier that day, Secretary Baker had popped in. He popped in constantly. And he had said to President Bush, President Bush was awake. And he said to Secretary Baker, Jimmy, where are we going? And Secretary Baker said to him, well, El Jefe, he used to call him El Jefe, which means the boss in Spanish. He says, El Jefe, I think you're going to heaven. And President Bush says, well, that's exactly where I want to go. So about five o'clock that evening, I'm sitting with him and then been family in and out all day. But at that particular moment in time, I'm the only one in the room. He was not in a coma, but he was not awake. He seemed very far away. His eyes were closed. I'm just sitting there holding his hand, Dana, and talking, just talking in case he could hear me. I'm just started talking about this and that. Ronan Tynan, uh, the great singer, had just come and sang Silent Night to him, which was such an unbelievable moment. I forgot to put that in the book, which i just kicking myself. It was so special. But anyway, he and I are just sitting there. And I had a tiny little cough. I went, (coughs) I think I had a tickle in my throat. And his eyes flew open and he squeezed my hand. He said, Gene, are you okay? And it just is the last words he would ever speak to me. Mm. And it was so him. It was so appropriate. He was dying, but he was worried about me. And it just says everything you need to know about him. And I said, sir, I just had a little cough. And then he squeezed my hand and closed his eyes again. Hmm. Jean Becker, she wrote the book, The Man I Knew. She had uh, more time with the 41s than just about anybody in that post-presidency. And you uh, have told the story so well. And you give such great advice to everybody here. And not only are you okay, everything will be okay as well. I love your book, Dana. I love you. Oh, you're such a, I just love the mentoring role you play. I loved everything about her book, The Man I Knew. I dog-eared almost every page. There's amazing stories. And I just felt like it was such a blueprint for how to live a life of joy and purpose. So I highly encourage everybody to get that book. You will laugh and even probably cry like I did at the end. And next week, just in time for Father's Day, I have a fascinating conversation with former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice about how the relationship with her father shaped her into the woman she is today. And I say he helped her become a pretty powerful woman indeed. Make sure you subscribe to this series wherever you download podcasts and leave a rating and review. I'm Dana Perino. Everything will be okay. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. 
Listen to Fox News Podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.